Um, good morning. Let's try that again. All right. There we go. Okay. Okay. Uh, Summit, it's good to be back with you all. Um, quick update in the McLean household. The last time we were here, we were like 24 hours out from having a baby boy. So Bishop is here. He's alive and well. Um, he is going on four months in a couple of days or a week. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and that is now three kids under three. So you can pray for me um, right now. Um, I'm, I'm feeling it. We were gone for a month serving at one of our Young Life camps at Timberwolf. Um, we brought students to camp this summer from North Central High School and Park Tudor. And we're gearing up for another ministry year, year two for Washington Township Young Life in this new iteration. And so thank you for all of your support, your prayers. Um, we feel it. We feel your hospitality. And we are so uh, grateful for your leadership, leaders, pastors, all that. So I'm going to pray for our time. Um, and then we'll dive in. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. So with that spirit, we ask for preaching power. That you would help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. That your word would fall afresh on good soil. And whatever is not of you, would it fall off of me in these moments. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Look to your neighbor. Say, neighbor. You are still here. You're still here. That's right. That's what I want to preach about this morning. Psalm 22 is a word um, or words of encouragement when your darkest hour comes. And maybe you're not in your darkest hour. And I would say to you, Tuck this sermon in your back pocket because life will happen and that moment will come. Psalm 22 gives us um, words of encouragement, a balm, so to speak, for our soul in those tough and dreary days. There are very few things in life that cut across time and space. Rarely does humanity encounter moments that reach the doorsteps of all those from every genre, every creed, and every class. Modernity has created many chasms. It has created many distinctions between you and I. Money, education, housing, or lack thereof, are many of the distinctions we feel bodily every day, you and I. These are the lines in society that have dramatically impacted one's experience, your experience in the world, for better or for worse. But there is something. There is something in the world that doesn't care how many schools you've graduated from, how many accolades or degrees you possess, what your social status is to your friends or coworkers. It doesn't matter what your bank statement says at the end of the month. There is one thing in life 
that has no regard for your address or lack thereof. It does not care if you're male or female. Have a family, single or divorced. Friends, if you possess a body, if you possess a mind, if you possess a soul, then you are subject to its effects. You are prone to its appetite. It goes by many names. Most of us know it as suffering. Others title it despair. Past generations call it trials and tribulations. Or as my Jamaican grandmother would say, troubles. Sometimes it shows up with no name at all. You are bombarded by feelings of heaviness and weightiness. The anxiety begins to condescend upon your person with no warning at all. In some seasons, it even chooses to take the form of a cry or deep groaning. Sometimes it will even manifest as silence, definite silence. But I can tell by looking at all your stoic faces, none of that hits you. But I know I'm right about it. I know that there are persons in this room traversing life, not knowing what tomorrow will look like, not knowing what your next hour will look like, playing back the trauma and hurt of one's experience and saying, Lord, why me? So let me see if I can paint the picture more vividly. It was any other ordinary afternoon. John Perkins and his brother Clyde were out hoping to catch a movie at their local theater there in New Hebron, Mississippi. The year, 1946. Two young black boys looking to enjoy themselves, and Clyde had just returned home from serving his country as a survivor of World War II, a decorated war veteran. However, in just a matter of minutes, John would witness his brother being shot dead by two gunshots to the stomach by a police officer. John would witness his brother only to come back home and survive World War II, but be a victim of an unspoken war in these yet-to-be-United States. Anger, dread, sadness, feelings of injustice are but the tip of the iceberg for what John would experience. Or what about Louis Zamperini? You know the name. That famed World War II veteran as well. His suffering brought loneliness and hopelessness. He was a prisoner of war who was left stranded for 47 days in the Pacific Ocean. His plane had crashed. It had been shot down by the enemy. And there he was, sunburned, holding on to their life, to just wreckage from his plane. Lips crusted over, the, the, the barrowing heat pressed upon his shoulders, dehydrated. Death staring him in the eye. And on the 18th day at sea, young Louis had lost all hope. Loneliness and despair had become his friends. They had driven him to a place that he had forgotten about decades ago. Louis was so desperate. He started talking to God. Mm, that'll preach. That's the setting 
That's the backdrop. That's the ballad of Psalm 22. The tone and tenor of our text this morning is one of desperation. It is one of disorientation. And as the Bible calls it, it's a psalm of lament. And I know, I know, you young, sophisticated folk, we don't really use that word anymore, lament. But I think it would bode some of us well to cling on to some of these biblical expressions and languages because it gives you something to hold on to when life becomes rocky. It tells you that there is something for the thing that you're experiencing in life. That when it's a kind of window, Psalm 22 is a kind of window into the human experience for when hard seasons crash into you. For when moments become too difficult and they cascade upon your persons. David is here to teach us how we ought to respond in such times. And so no matter the texture, regardless of the terrain of your suffering, none are immune of it. You and I cannot run from it. And you may not have endured the tragedy and the misfortune like John and Louis. But friends, I think that you are very familiar with their sentiments. You have lost loved ones. You have struggled with friends and family. You have been betrayed by your spouse. Some of you have struggled to keep food on the table, a roof over your head. Others have grieved and are still grieving the loss of unborn and born children. You have traversed the halls of the hospital in utter disbelief and confusion. Suffering is the note that has been heard around the world. And when it strikes, it has a way of knocking the wind out of you. It, it has a way of disorienting what was once oriented. This text, this text is tailored to teach you and I that God is actually acutely aware of the things in our life that burden us. That he is more familiar with your suffering, despite what your suffering would have you to believe. That he is not overwhelmed. He is not naive. He is not indifferent towards your plight in the world. So therefore, child of God, when suffering comes to your station in life, the psalmist says to us, gives to us three anchors that you ought to hold on to when the ground beneath you begins to shake and quake and move. As old folks say, the, this, this word will give you something to lean on to, to put all your weight on it, something sturdy. Here it is. God can handle your burdens, so you ought to trust him with it. Young David has fallen on hard times. His desperation, his frustration, his despair is palpable. Can you feel the weight of David's situation? Can you see the sulking of his shoulders as he carries his burden? Do you notice his head hanging low as the anxiety begins to feel like a yoke hanging from his neck? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Lord, why have you forsaken me? Lord, why does it feel like you have left me? Where are you? Although it isn't revealed to us what exactly David was up against, 
Most scholars agree that it was probably Saul and his homeboys chasing and running after young David. And I imagine David on the run trying to maneuver the vast and deadly terrain of the ancient Near East landscape. On the run from Saul or some other foreign enemy, there he is, huddled up in some cave, down on his knees in utter confusion, thinking and saying aloud, God, God, where did you go? What happened to all those promises? What happened to all those good words? What happened to all that joy? What happened to you saying you were going to show up when I needed you? Does it sound familiar? Does it feel close? Can you see him, church? Clothes and body, dirty and worn out, head in his hands, tears in his eyes, anxiety upon his chest, burden weighing on his person. Notice now, notice now the nature, the pattern of David's words. David is vacillating between disorientation and orientation. He finds himself living in two realities. On the one hand, he is confused. He's experiencing deep emotional and mental pain. According to verses 1 and 2, My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But on the other hand, he is clear. He is certain. Verses 3 and 5, but you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. They cried to you and they were set free. Throughout the psalm, this is the pattern that continues. Despair, delight, pain, praise, loneliness, joy. Friends, this is a picture of someone who is being undone by life. And he's letting God know. Now, let me say a bit. David is keeping it real. And I know that's difficult for some of you. That's difficult for you and I. David is showing his weakness. He's displaying vulnerability. David is, dare I say it, being honest with God. What a word. What a word that says you, you, you actually can bring your fears and hurts, and pains. You actually have somewhere to go and to lay those things down. What a word to all you sophisticated and educated and economically stable folk who think life is in the palm of your own hand. I'm coming for some of you this morning. What a word to a generation that is enamored and enchanted with the myth of looking stoic and unnerved and the pressure in the face of pressure. Oh, what a word to you who have been shaped into believing that you have to compose all the right words and do all the right things at all the right times. That you must post the perfect family picture in order to convince yourself and all your friends and all your co-workers and all your family that y'all just got it all together. But reality is when you shut the door to your house, you look up and you see that there's a hole in the roof and your marriage is caved in. How hard it is for young people growing up today that every time you turn on the TV, every time you scroll through your phone, you are being told a narrative that you ought to be this way or be that way 
or get with that girl and get with that guy in order to be loved, in order to be wanted, in order to feel belong. You got to look like this influencer and dress like that artist and give your body up in all kinds of ways. And all the while, you got to keep your mouth shut, put a big smile on your face while your soul and your psyche suffocate. The psalmist is saying to you and I that God is big enough, that he is strong enough, that he is safe enough for you to let your walls down, friends. That God is actually trustworthy to handle your burdens and you with care. But you can cast your anxieties upon him. You can, you can throw your anger and frustration at him. And he says, come to me, child. It doesn't bother me. David's experience here is a snapshot of what it's like to walk with God in a fallen world. He is giving us a behind-the-scenes view of what it is to live amongst sin and in sin, all while trying to hold on to God's unchanging hand. And his acknowledgement of his suffering is leading him to lean on God's character. Oh, I know I'm right about it. I can hear those old saints, and they would say to me, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Don't you just love that good old King James version? It's just something substantive about it. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Maybe, maybe I read somewhere that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will walk and not grow faint. They will run and not grow weary. Friends, that's, what's ha- that's what happens when you lay your burdens down. That's the power. And I know that I'm preaching to some people this morning who need to hear that when you humble yourself, when you seek the presence of the Lord in all things, He will make his power known to you in your weakness. When you lean on him and not your money. When you lean on him and not your addiction. God has a way of showing up and doing what you can't do. Because he does it on your behalf. There it is. The psalmist makes the second movement. He says when you trust God with your burdens, he's faithful to overcome them. I thought that would get a few amens. That, that feels good to me. I, I, I want a God who will overcome the things in my life that I just have no answer for. I want a God who gives me the solution and says, come to me. That's what George Mueller did that one morning. He had woken up. He had saw that the cupboards in his orphanage were bare. Every cup and bowl in the house had no food in them. He checked his pockets and noticed that his Money had become strange. The change in his pocket was not adding up. His bank account had read zero. And all the while, there stood 300 little boys and girls ready to eat. And Mr. Mueller had started an orphanage in England to care for the children in his community. But now he's the one that finds himself in need. Wanting to make sure that his kids were not late for school, George lifts up his hand. He prays, dear father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Then a knock comes at the door. 
lo and behold, the local baker was at the door and said, Mr. Mueller, Mr. Mueller, I, I just couldn't sleep at night. I was tossing and turning and something kept telling me, I think, I think God was telling me I needed to bring some bread to you. So I got up at 2 a.m. and I started baking all this bread and here I am to give you some bread because I think you need it. Oh, but it gets better. As soon as the baker left, there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. Lord, help me. And he did not want for his milk to go to waste. So he gave the children his fresh cans of milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. Friends, all I'm trying to say is that God is on your side. That somehow, when you begin to open your mouth and, and go into that closet, Close that door and fall on your knees and said, Lord, I need you. Something happens. Something happens when his people trust in God and his power and say, Lord, I need you to show up in my life. That's the pearl. That's the pearl hidden in the first half of Psalm 22. That he is the balm to your sorrow. The psalmist never tells us how God showed up or when he showed up in David's life. But what is clear is that God did show up. Can you see David in verses 12 through 18? Head still in his hands, crying out to God, his enemies encircling him like bulls of Bashan, lions and, and, and bears ravening and mauling and roaring at David. Figurative language. He's in a tough spot. It is the kind of suffering that keeps you up at night. The kind that takes away your appetite. It is the kind of suffering that makes you doubt everything you thought you knew about God. I know I'm close to home now. A generation that is riddled with anxiety. So much of us have to take so many substances to sleep because our mind won't stop. We keep thinking about all the things and all the stuff that's going on in our world and in our home and all the cares and all the fears. And sometimes the thought of closing your eyes brings trauma to you. This is language of anguish. David is being mocked and ridiculed for his faith in God. But somewhere deep in the recesses of his mind and conscience, David begins to remember. He begins to remember that kernel of truth. He begins to rewind the tape and goes back to those stories of you. He remembers what had happened to his ancestors in Egypt. He remembers that what God had did for them in Egypt. And there they are, bruised and beaten. Skin burned by the sun from hours and hours of hard labor. For 400 years, the Israelites knew nothing but slavery. Born into slavery. Oppression, work, all while under the thumb of Pharaoh. Freedom was nowhere to be found. It would seem as though God had abandoned those folk too. But then those Israelites began to cry. And then they began to groan. And then they started to fall on their knees and lift up their hands and call on the name of God. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 2 that God had heard them, that he would remember them, that he saw them, 
And then he raised up a man named Moses. And he says, hey, Mo, go tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. And when I am showed up in Egypt, Pharaoh bowed. Chains were broken. Folks who were in bondage were set free. The Red Sea would stand sentinel as his people would walk and gallivant and take their time running from trouble without a scratch to touch their head. I know I'm right about it. Verse 19, David uses that same word to invoke the name of God. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. David, in that moment, remembered the promises of God and says, if you could do it back then, then Lord, I know you can show up for me today. And first, maybe that's the word that some of us need to hear. That you have thought that God has forgotten you. And, and I'm here to say that the same God that shows up for David, the same God that shows up in the New Testament, is the same God that does, does things in your life right now today. And sometimes the best thing for you to do in the midst of your suffering is to glance in the rearview mirror of your own life. It's to trace the hand of God. It's to see that you made it to Sunday morning. It's to see that you somehow you, you were able to get up and come to church. Clothes on your body. Food in your belly. You drove a car here. A roof over your head. Don't miss the divine and supernatural in the ordinary. So often we are looking for the supernatural to be this overtly an abstract thing. But God's goodness to you is the tangible things that he does in your life every day. And you wonder, Lord, Lord, where have you gone? And he could be saying back to you, here you are alive and well. God's past actions is the proof of the, in the pudding that God is a God who listens. And when the going got hard and when the darkness began to consume you, there he was, outstretched arm and said, come here, child. Let me, let me pull you from that muck and mire. He is the kind of God that moves closer and not further from you in your time of need. How do I know this, Pastor? Pastor, I know that's what you're asking. How do I know this? I'm glad you asked. See, David's suffering is pointing to a much greater, more significant suffering. When we come to the New Testament, we quickly come to find out about a God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. I'm having fun now. He was way up there, and he looked out from his perch in heaven, and he would see all the, the, the stuff that was going on way down here. And he said, you know what? I had enough. So he decided to come way down here. And he began talking and walking and sitting with his creation. And in every way, he was human while still being God at the same time. He was too familiar with portrayal by his closest friends. He, too, was mocked in the public square. He, too, was tempted in every way. He, too, was riddled with so much anxiety that when this brother prayed, blood dripped from his brow. He too was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But you know what else he did? He bore your sin. He bore the sin of the world. He took on your suffering. He took on my suffering. He was pierced for your transgressions. 
He was crushed by your iniquities. And it was way up there on that old rugged cross where they hung my Jesus. They hung him high. They hung him wide. They put a cast of crowns upon his head. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side. And he hung there with your evil, with your sin, with your suffering, with your mess, with your stuff in mind. Oh, my Jesus. Oh, my Jesus, they hung. Then he died, y'all. He died until death died. He died until sin apologized. And he died and he brought the suffering of his people with him. And after three long days later, three long days later, Jesus got up with all power and majesty and victory in his hands. And church, that's the power that overcomes the things that you deal with in this world. That's the power that overcomes the burden of your sin. The burden of the sin of things that have been done towards you. That's the power that causes you and I to have a hope when the world tells you you should have no hope. It's from that place. From that place that David makes his final movement. That the goodness and the mercy of, of God that shows up in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the power that enables you and I to share with those around us what God, what God has done. God can turn your sufferings into testimonies, your hard things into stories. In other words, the psalmist is saying that, that God has a way of repurposing your hurt, reshaping and reorienting your suffering in such a way that it not only deepens your faith, but it also becomes a means for you to share your faith with an unbelieving world. That was a mouthful, but come with me to the end of the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. One of the most problematic questions it has stood the test of time. Why does God allow evil to happen in our world? How do we explain church shootings like the one in Nashville or the one in Charleston? What do we do with the evil of racism, sexism, and classism, the sin of those things? Why do our young people keep bringing guns to school? Why every time I get on the news, I see another teenager being shot in the street? What is happening to the things and places around us? Friends, I don't know. And I would be very leery and cautious of anyone that says they have an answer to that question. But here's what I do know. I do know that God has gifted the world, his church, for times of evil. He has given the world a people who were born out of tragedy, whose foundation was built from suffering. And when your fellow neighbor 
or your loved one begins to raise the question, why, oh, why would this happen to me? You will have a story to tell of what Jesus has done for you. And when you begin to ask the question, why, Lord, why, when the people of God raise their hands and open their mouths and sing praises to God and show up to church when life says you shouldn't show up and trust that God anymore. When, when, when people of God begin to walk faithful in the world amidst hard things, an unbelieving world begins to say, who is that? Well, how can that person do what she is doing or he is doing? How dare they have joy in their heart when life is crumbling around them? Friends, an unbelieving world sees that and says, I want some of that. When they begin to see you testifying and sharing how God has still been good to you, the world says, that's the hope I've been looking for. A hope born out of suffering. The hope that Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that produces a character, that produces endurance, that produces hope, a living hope. The reason churches like Covenant Prayers in Nashville and Emmanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina, the reason why those folks can pray and forgive those who have brought evil to their doorsteps, the reason why they had the audacity to pay for the funerals of the person who brought such evil to their doorsteps is because they have gasted their gaze upon the cross of Jesus. And they have come to discover that when the sun sets, the power and blood of Jesus causes me to see that morning sunshine. For as Jesus, with his body and blood, secured a hope that says one day there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain. There will be no more evil. There will be no more death. There will be no more gunshots. Babies dying. Folk going hungry. I thought I read somewhere that every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Friends, on the other side of your suffering is glory. Glory is your present. Glory is your future. Let's pray. Jesus, be kind to us. Comfort us. Give us peace. Amen.